Hey, I'm Daniel, a political activist and campaigner turned management consultant turned coach. And this is PoliticWise, the podcast where politics meets personal development. Let's face it, it's easy to criticize those in politics. But being in politics is not an easy ride. And yet for many who make the leap, it's worth it. They can make a real difference. So how can we have both? How can we make a difference while at the same time showing up as the best version of ourselves? It's a question that's been with me for the last 20 years. First, when I started out as an activist leading an NGO, then when I did a PhD in politics, and later when I quit my job in consulting to help build up a political movement and run an election campaign. And today, as I coach young leaders who want to make a difference while staying true to themselves. I know the answers are out there, so join me on this podcast. We'll hear from political leaders, from psychologists, neuroscientists, philosophers about their findings and experiences. And together, we learn about the ideas, mindsets, and tools of wise people in politics and beyond. Let's go. My guest today is Professor Ian Robertson. Ian Robertson is co-director of the Global Brain Health Institute at Trinity College Dublin and the University of California in San Francisco. He's a trained clinical psychologist as well as a neuroscientist, and he's internationally renowned for his research on neuropsychology. He's written five books and numerous newspaper and magazine articles, including in The Guardian, Times, Telegraph, and Irish Times. And in this conversation, I talk with Ian Robertson about the research and the findings of his latest book, How Confidence Works, And we talk about the importance of confidence in our lives and practical steps for how it can be developed. Oh, yeah. Professor Ian Robertson, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Hello, Daniel. Nice to meet you. Um, I, 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 I read a lot. Uh, and uh, over the weekend, it, it didn't take me long to really devour your new book, uh, How Confidence Works. And um, I, I thought the research uh, was, was insightful. You also use stories to illustrate the research. Um, I, I made some copy uh, copies of some of the ideas from my own life. Um, and I think it's quite a practical guide for those listening to this podcast uh, of how, how confidence works, how to be more confident. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd love to start here, perhaps. Why is confidence important? Yeah, what, what do we know from the research about confidence and why it, it matters in our lives? Well, thank you for that, and thank you for the, the question, because it's a very important one. Can I maybe go back a bit and say what distinguishes human beings from all other species more than anything else, more than tool use, more than language, more than capacity for empathy, is the ability to envisage states of the world that don't yet exist and to strive towards creating them. And that's what all, all of your... I suspect subscribers who are in political uh, world are trying to do. They're trying to create different states of the world than exist at the moment, sometimes states that don't yet exist. And um, th this is the, there's no other species does this to work collectively towards creating new states of the world. Sometimes it can be new states of the internal world, more often of the external world. And um, uh, the, the critical, this is what I call the bridge to the future, 
and it's the basis of all civilization. We would not be having this amazing technology connecting us between Berlin and Dublin. Uh, we would not be privileged to live to the ages that we're hopefully going to live to because of medical advances and scientific advice advances and technological advances. So everything about human civilization and human organization depends on this ability to collectively envisage new states of the world that don't yet exist and to work towards creating these as yet non-existent states. That's the basis of all science, of all medicine, of all politics. Um, and But to cross that bridge, there's a critical ingredient and that requires confidence. And confidence is the belief that you, that I, or we can do something. We can take action towards creating that state of the world. That is the, uh, the, 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 kind of the energy that takes us across that bridge. And there's two, and it's essentially a belief. Mm. It's essentially a set of beliefs, two particular beliefs. I can do that, or we can do that. And th this can happen if I do that. So it's the can happen and the can do. And that has profound effects on the brain that I can go into later uh, to make it actually partly a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. And so, but the, the last thing I'll say about confidence is, Confidence is always about stretching the limits. Because it's in the future, you can never be 100% certain. If you're 100% certain of what the outcome will be or of whether you can do that or not, you don't need confidence. If it's something you've done a thousand times, you don't need confidence to do that. Confidence is about bridging uncertainty. The future always involves a certain amount of uncertainty. Mm. And so confidence allows you to price in uncertainty and do take action because you believe you can do something, not with 100% certainty, but that, and that ability to bridge uncertainty is one of the, the probably the greatest resource of the human mind and the, the, the fuel for human civilization. Yeah, let, let's dive into that, the, the, the difference that this belief makes in our lives and, 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 and in the way we act. I once heard this statement against confidence in a way to say, build competence, not confidence. Right? To, to, there's on the one side, the actual capacity, the skill set to, to, to do something. And then on the other, the feeling or the belief that you can do it and that it can happen in the world. Um, say a bit more about why this belief is so important. Whoever said that it's terrible advice and don't, don't follow it. There are many very, very competent people who don't don't manage to fulfill the, the fruit of that competence because they lack confidence. Yeah. And that, on average, is more true for women than men. So, comp yes, you need competence, absolutely. But by goodness, <laughs> without without confidence, competence is seldom can, can realize its potential. Um, so... But the, 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 the truth in that argument is that competence is about action, about actual practical behavior, taking steps. And that is the, the critical thing about confidence that distinguishes it from optimism. Hmm. Optimism is the belief that things will turn out okay, but it doesn't entail any action from you. 
nor is it self-esteem. Self-esteem is your evaluation of your own ego, your own evaluation of yourself. And that is not linked to action either. The secret sauce of confidence is its links to action. The confidence is, is linked to the action systems of the brain, whether they're motoric or verbal or, or planning in the future. And um, the, the thing about believing you can do something, yes, partly it's based on previous success. The greatest, the greatest source of confidence is uh, successful past behavior in a domain. Okay, mm-hmm. if you've had, if you've had, um, uh, if you've had failure experiences, it saps your confidence. If you confidence, if you've had success experiences, so yeah. Past competence is one of the building blocks of competence, but it's not sufficient. The thing about confidence is when you believe that you can do something and you believe that that successful something will result in a a reward or a positive outcome in the world that you expect, that activates the brain's reward system, the dopamine-fueled reward system, the same system that's activated by pay rises, sex, and cocaine. And uh, so when you even just anticipating and believing that you can do something causes a slight increase in the activation of this system, and that has four effects on your brain and mind. First of all, it's a natural antidepressant and mood elevator. That's because of the effect of the small lifting of dopamine activity. Secondly, it's an anti-anxiety agent. So it reduces anxiety because of its mood-elevating effects. Thirdly, it makes you more likely to take action, okay, it, it, in spite of uncertainty. Mm. And fourthly, it makes you a tiny bit smarter. It makes mm. you smarter because of the dopamine uh, it particularly infiltrates the frontal lobes of the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is where you do your planning and your abstract thinking. And that elevation of mood makes you a little bit more able to to think more clearly and to plan and to and and to have a bit of see the wood for the trees. So and so so that's even that's before you actually do the thing. Yeah. <laughs> so then you do the thing, and because you're in this state, this mood elevated, anxiety reduced, slightly smarter, and action um, uh, prone state, then you're more likely to do the thing, and you're more likely to do it better to succeed in doing it. Um, and then you get you get all of these things happen again. You get a reward in your brain because you've bridged uncertainty. There's been a certain, can I do this or, or, or not? You're not 100% certain. You've achieved it, and your brain then gives you that second boost of all of these things. And that, that then multiplies like compound interest in an exponential way over time hmm. because you're then more likely to take action against a new goal or target, which is slightly stretches you slightly more. And then the rewards multiply and the, the achievements multiply. So that's that really goes back to the winner effect of a previous book of mine, where the greatest source of success is, is success. But there, there are many people, there are many cognitive and, and, and psychological processes go on that means it's not guaranteed 
that that you will benefit from that if you like that primitive re reward uh, exponential system and so it is a it is a strong ally then to have on your side this this belief in all of these feelings with all of the mechanisms that you have have just described and it is self reinforcing and i wonder And this is something that you explain in your book, and perhaps you can tell tell the listeners a little bit more about it. How how do you start this this cycle? So how how do we how do we start to build confidence? Uh, you have a very clear statement. It, it is something that can be learned. It is some, something that you can actively without doubt, learn without doubt. So um, the, the the first thing to say about confidence is that it's domain specific. It's not yeah. a general purpose. Um, I am a confident person, although there's no doubt about it. If people become confident in several domains, there's a likelihood that they will be there's a kind of meta confidence develops where they they feel more they feel confident in domains where they don't have experience as well. Mm. But it's not. There are many people who are academically very confident, for example, but socially very unconfident. There are people with you know great confidence in physical prowess, but but lack confidence and mental prowess. So it is it pertains to a domain of activity. So if you're going to to have a plan to become more confident, you have to define start with at least one domain. Mm -hmm. And then the critical thing is to visualize the thing it is that you feel self-doubt about doing. Okay. What what is it that I feel self-doubt about doing? So You may have self-doubt that you can become an MEP in the European Parliament, but that's that's a big faraway goal, and big faraway goals don't really work as agents of confidence. It's good to have them as a as a distant goal, but it it's as it's as likely to 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 defeat you and deplete your confidence if you have goals that are too big and too far away, as it is to encourage as it is to motivate you. So yes, by all means, have some fantasy uh, long-term goal that you want, but you have to build an edifice of intermediate goals leading up to that one. So you have to have proximal goals in the domain. And it could be, yeah, I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to, my goal is I'm going to make a short presentation to the party meeting this weekend. I may be very anxious about speaking in public or putting myself forward, but that's my goal. The critical thing about goals, and goals are central to confidence, the critical thing about goals is they have a sweet spot. They can't be too hard or too big or too far away. That that that, that leads, actually, people who have, if you like, fantasy goals about being rich or famous or beautiful or, you know, thin or, you know, distant goals As, are as likely to to sabotage your your ability and undercut your confidence. So the sweet spot and easy goals are, are no good either because they don't give you much of a reward. If you know if they're so too easy, then the, the, your brain doesn't respond to to doing them because you you know you can do this. So there's this sweet spot of goals that something where there's, there's uncertainty. You're you're not hundred percent certain you can do this, but you're you're then you're you're setting yourself your goal. You're going to to do this. This is my intermediate goal. And then um, having said that goal, there's a whole lot of things you 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 can do to make it more likely you will achieve that goal. 
Um, and and uh, mental rehearsal is a very important part of this, where you mentally visualize yourself doing the thing mm -hmm. that you're hoping you can do. The mental rehearsal activates almost all the same brain circuits that you would use if you were actually doing it. And so that's a really, really important part. All great athletes, all top athletes use mental rehearsal. Very, very detailed, going over in your mind in, in, in real time as if you were actually doing it, the, the thing you're doing. Mm -hmm. The second thing is what, what the greatest enemy of confidence is anxiety. Mm. And the greatest antidote to anxiety is confidence. And so the second thing you can do, you, you know, if you're anxious about public speaking, you will, and you visualize yourself doing that, you will feel the anxiety growing. And the symptoms of anxiety, beating heart, dry mouth, uh, sweaty hands, are identical to those of excitement. And they're identical to those nearly of anger. Hmm. So anger, excitement, and anxiety actually as far as the brain is concerned, are pretty identical, and as far as the body is concerned, are pretty identical. And they only become a particular emotion by the label we put on them, by the context. So, for example, a couple of years ago, I was at home on my own in the afternoon, and I suddenly felt these symptoms of dry mouth, beating heart, etc. Uh, what, what emotion was I having? And when I ask that question, most people say anxiety. Or fear. I said, no, I was excited because the rugby, England, Scotland was beating England at rugby. And um, uh, how then did I know that I was excited and not angry well, or, or not uh, anxious? Only because I was sitting at home with a beer watching a rugby match. Had I been in a dark um, street with some figures approaching, I might have and had these symptoms. I would have immediately interpreted them as fear and anxiety. So the great thing about these symptoms that we we feel when we're anticipating doing something that stretches us a bit is that they are actually just a form of energy. They're just your body preparing for action. And your body doesn't care whether that action is running away, celebrating, or fighting, punching someone. It's just a preparation for action. That's what it's doing. And so it's possible for you to change the emotion by changing your labeling of that emotion. And <laughs> peculiarly enough, there's a very nice study done in, uh, in Pittsburgh, getting people who were doing a very anxious present public presentation, anxiety arousing public presentation, where their heart rate was demonstrated on monitors to the public, and they were asked very challenging questions. They had to do mental arithmetic in front of people. It's called the Trier, the Trier stress test. It was developed in Trier in Germany. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and what they did was they got one group to say out loud to themselves before they did the mental arithmetic, they got them to say, uh, I feel anxious, which was accurate because they could see their heart beating. But they got the other group to change just one word and say, I feel excited. And the group that said, I feel excited, performs significantly better on the mental arithmetic than the group who said, I feel anxious. And that was because they had created a different state of their brain, which was um, reward-oriented of, can I do this? 
it was oriented towards the confidence uh, domain of behavior rather than the threat perception domain of behavior. And that would have actually lowered their anxiety slightly and made them able to think more clearly and do the task. So that's the, the other thing about it, is to take control of these these this energy that's common to these three activating emotions and realize that you 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 can relabel that and, and and think of it as excitement rather than as a source of threat because yeah. when you're excited that anticipates you you saying anticipating successfully mastering a challenge even yeah. though it's not certain whereas when you when you say i feel anxious that 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 promotes and and activates the the threat punishment detection system of the brain and that biases your attention and your memory to make you more your mind and your consciousness much more full of memories of past failures of, of uh, and attention to future threats um so that's that, that's you know the second thing um so set set the goal um try to to relabel your anxiety as part of the energy for achieving that goal and then i mean the, the critical thing is um action you know, for all confidence, it's just taking that step. So if you can even take a step, a mini step, just before the speaking to your party on, on the Saturday meeting, if you can just say, well, I'm going to phone up, I'm going to set myself a, an even smaller task that maybe even causes me some anxiety. I'm going to phone up the party secretary and say, I'd like to speak on Saturday, Okay. And that's that is quite important because that's forward commitment, and it makes it harder to to back out as well. So, it, but taking action is just critical to confidence. Doing things that are not too comfortable, not too easy, but also that are within that kind of yeah, that kind of zone of the sweet spot of 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 yeah, it's it's hard, but I can I, I can do it. Because the other thing about confidence is doing things in spite of anxiety. Is a huge source of of of, yeah. of confidence. If you do something and it's very easy and you don't feel any anxiety, yes, it'll build your confidence, but it won't. It, it's a it, it's like a vaccination. <laughs> the vaccination of a bit of anxiety really really strengthens that behavior quite considerably. Yeah, and I guess you're you're, you're what you're doing if you're following these these tips is you're learning how to mentally rehearse something okay. to channel your attention on what needs to be done in the yeah. next step and and you're you're learning how to reframe uh, an emotion as excitement versus uh anxiety and, yeah. and the other the other yes absolutely and the other thing is is, is responding to failure um uh, and this works out in, in the markets and the economy as well we have these two basic systems of the brain uh, which are partly implemented in each hemisphere of the brain. We have a, a reward-anticipating uh, future-oriented approach system which tends to take us towards goals, which is we need for confidence. And we have a threat punishment detection system, a kind of risk perception system, uh, an avoidance system. And these two are in conflict. They, they try and inhibit each other. And, and a healthy brain needs a healthy activation of both because if we don't have risk perception, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll be in trouble. But these, because the two halves of the brain are trying to inhibit each other, if one becomes overstrong, 
it can inhibit the other one too much. Similarly, if one becomes weakened for whatever reason, the other one can strengthen. And so in, you know, before the big Great Recession of 2007, um, in a boom economy, uh, the, not just the financial traders, etc., but the whole population is biased towards thinking about future rewards. And their, their memory systems are actually impaired. They find it difficult to remember past, past downs, past crashes, past failures. Mm. And then what happens when the crash comes, that system collapses. And then the, the avoidance risk perception system expands hugely, where all people can think about is past failures and past crashes. And all they can pay attention to is signs of future risk and future punishment, if you like. And that's the, the bear market. And for instance, in Japan, after their great economic crash, you know, a, a generation ago, it, it took them, I think, 20 years to come out of that where people you know, we're able to gradually escape from the prison of this, just not wanting to spend, not wanting to invest, because oh, they were so burned by that, that dominated by the attention and memory systems being focused on the downside. Mm -hmm. And that, that's true of individuals as well. And most of us, most of us, in a healthy state, there's a slight advantage for the approach system over the avoidance system. And that's why, that's why, people start new companies, new businesses. If they were following strict logic and statistical background, they wouldn't do it because most businesses fail. Mm. <laughs> but because we are all, if, we, if we're not depressed, we're all slightly, slightly overconfident. Men are more overconfident on average than women. And that gives them the advantage of that slight overconfidence. Because the other thing about confidence is it's it's a huge source of persuasion of other people. Slight overconfidence gives you status, which makes you more persuasive and therefore easier. In politics, that's so important because it allows you to persuade other people and influence them and get your way more mm. successfully. That's the whole interpersonal aspect of it. Say a, bit, say a bit more about the, this gender gap and, and the research that we have on the gender gap as it relates to confidence. I, I found that hugely interesting on why it exists and uh, perhaps if we have the time even how to address how to address the gap. Well, I um, as a privileged white male, I you know as I I thought oh, I'll do a I'll do a chapter on gender differences and in, in sex differences and confidence in this book. And um, I found, I was so humbled by what I discovered in the research by the, the huge and manifold disadvantages that women are experience against men in terms of this incredibly valuable resource, uh, confidence. Now, um, so, so there are many, many reasons for it. So let me give you a couple, just random examples. Um, is... Uh, Now, this was research done in the USA and different cultures have different aspects of this. But, you know, uh, so, so women, where you have, if you look at the well-being of men in a relationship, say a, a marriage or a partnership, as the, as the woman's proportion of the joint income increases, um, uh, the more it increases, the less the well-being 
of the man until at the point where if if if, if she is hugely dominant it's his well-being is, is, is as low as if she was earning nothing at all mm. so in, in in marriages it's you know, the the male ego finds it easier if he is earning 60% of the joint income and, and the woman 40%. You get a kind of happy point there. But when she's, when it goes to 50-50 or then goes the other way, his well-being goes down. And this is a fundamental um, obstacle to, 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 to relationships. Now, there's one caveat here. Where the people go into the relationship knowing that there's going to be such a difference and it's accepted up front, then that dynamic doesn't necessarily work out at all. It's, mm. And there are many enlightened people much younger than me, men quite happy to be in relationships with women who are much more uh, have higher status because of their higher income, etc. But particularly people of my generation and, and, and generations below me, it's, it's, it's tough for us not to feel we're the top dog in a male-female relationship. And that's, that that makes it really hard for smart, successful, achieving young women to maintain relationships because there's relatively few, very few enlightened men of my age, you know, for instance. Um, so that's a kind of one of the structural things. But mm -hmm. then if we go much earlier, there was a, a wonderful study in Switzerland done where they, they got um, uh, six-year-old children to predict the winner of an election <clears throat> based entirely on seeing the photographs of the candidates for less than a second and they didn't know the candidates and the children were 70% accurate at predicting who would win the election mm. and when they analysed what the key factors were in the photographs it was the perception of competence it was the perception of competence in the face and when they looked what determined the perception of competence, it was the relative masculinity of the face. Electorates will be biased to perceive male faces as competent um, more than female faces. <clears throat> now you get you get in women's faces, you get variations of, if you like, masculine features. And yes. The, the more uh, angular and masculine a woman's face starts to look, the more competent she's perceived to be. However, for women, there's a tipping point. When she starts to look too masculine, she start, the, the competence ratings goes down and, and her behaviours start to be interpreted in different ways, for instance, as aggressive and, and negative as opposed to uh, dominant and, and firm as they would be in a man. So the, but these are just two examples. I mean, I could I could list about twenty or thirty structural, both external factors, yeah. the fact of men like me feeling having this unconscious need to maintain a, a dominance in, in a male female relationship, for example. Um, for that kind of structural thing to the internal things to 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 the uh, a woman's um, uh, ability to compete, and I'll just I'll give you that third example just of, of there, if if I may. 
and, and we're talking here about Western individualistic societies here, not about collective societies like like Japan. That's a different dynamic there. Um, but um, when you look at women's uh, self representation, uh, and you can look at this in the brain and the medial frontal cortex, their self, when they think about themselves, is much more involved. And, and related to their relationships with other people, their close relationships. Their self-concept is much more closely tied to their relationships with other people, with friends and colleagues, etc. Whereas men's, when you get them to think about themselves, it's much more isolated from their relationships. And this means that men can compete much more comfortably than women can. Because when women are, because uh, competing essentially means ruthlessly dominating, and it's much easier for a man to ruthlessly dominate to have the killer instinct than it is for a woman, because a woman's competing against herself, if you like. So that's just a really, and that's why there's evidence of women being less inclined to take part in competitions of any kind than men, which of course disadvantages them hugely. But I could go on about this. It's just an enormous mm. uh, uh, fact. Yeah. And and if I understood your book correctly, it's a, apart from uh, the scenario where they are doing this together, where they're feeling that they are not competing against each other, but but as part of a group. Um, and also, I think, and and, and please comment on that if if that's incorrect. Um, uh, the, the link to your previous book, the the winner effect on. Um, where you also uh, highlight this gender difference in, in, yeah. in terms of how men and women seek power. And if I understood it correctly, you're saying there is no difference in terms of seeking power, this drive to seek yeah. power, but it's the purpose for which power is sought that that, that is a difference. Yeah, exactly. So the, the desire for power or, or control is a, one of the three primitive motivations that we have to different degrees for power, for achievement, and for connection to other people, for affiliation, for, for being accepted. And the power one in, in drive is uh, there's just a basic pleasure in calling the shots, a basic kind of reward of being top dog. Okay. And that can happen in a company, in a country, or in a family, okay? So big sisters and big brothers have more experience of power over little sisters and little brothers, and, and you know, some of, some of them never get over that. So, um, so, so the, power, the, the power drive, however, has an additional aspect to it. There is this basic fuel, an appetite, for calling the shots. And not everyone has that appetite to a huge degree. And if you want to be successful in politics or in business, you probably have to have, or if you want to rise up, you can be successful as a contributor to a collective endeavor by all means. But if you want to be a leader in politics or business or elsewhere, you have to have an appetite, basic appetite that you want to call the shots. You think you want to implement your ideas. Um, and however, there's another, if you like, not alternative source of power, but an, an, another kind of part of the mind, which is, yes, you want to do that. And that's your primitive, if you like, the primitive drive. But you want it on behalf of the group, the country, the 
the cause. Mm. And that's so the first type of power is called P power, and that's basically the that's the that's the the fuel that fuels the engine. But the S power is the is 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 the kind of the gears that that distributes that energy for for its purpose, if you like. And um, where you have and the, the wonderful thing about S power is it actually dampens down the primitive and addictive biological effects of the P power on the human brain, which drives, you know, causes real big problems when, when it becomes unconstrained and success breeds success and the ego grows and narcissism and that whole pattern of behavior. But if, if you have S power as well, it mitigates it, actually lowers the, the hormonal response to beating another person. It, it makes you're less likely to become addicted to the power. And on average, women have better, more higher levels of this S power than men, on average. Mm. Uh, they may have lower levels of P power on average um, because of the different testosterone levels, baseline testosterone levels. But generally, uh, you know, if you get professions like teachers and doctors and nurses all have quite high levels of appetite for power, the raw appetite. But it, it's it's much more um, tempered with the S power. And in politics, you can actually analyze and measure the, the, the relative appetites for P power and S power in free spoken language. Mm. And, and and you can you can measure it the, the, you measure the P power by the use of words like to do with impact, reputation, concern with reputation, um, action. Whereas the S power you measure by the proportion of nots, don'ts, and shouldn'ts in the free speech, because that's ev that's evidence of, um, of, of, if you like, the constraints, the feeling that you, your power is on behalf of, and there are rules bigger than you about in terms of um, of, of, of how you can uh, execute this this power. Yeah. Uh, that's why we, uh, when they studied George W. Bush, compared his free speech with Barack Obama's. They both had similar levels of P power, but um, Barack Obama had much higher levels of S power, and that's you know one reason he found it I think so easy to to give up power as president because he wasn't nearly as addicted to it as some other presidents have been. That's a, that's a fascinating, also fascinating detour and link to power uh, between confidence and and power. Yeah. Um, Coming back to confidence, so far we've spoken about confidence largely in the in the sense of uh, individual confidence, the confidence that I have, that you have. Yeah. Um, there is also a, a collective uh, confidence that yeah. you uh, refer yeah. to towards the end of your book. You talk of um, confidence in business, confidence in politics, and talking about confidence of of a nation. Yeah. Um, Perhaps with, with the listener in mind, uh, people who are new in politics, going into politics, what's um, do you think relevant to know for them about this, about collective uh, confidence? Um, so collective confidence is enormously powerful, as any political person would know. If you can get a hundred people or a thousand or a million people all believing they can do something that the, the, you're essentially networking a million brains together. Mm. <laughs> you're going to get 
ideas and, and action that's going to make it much more likely you'll achieve your goals. So that's the kind of politician's dream. And of course, populist politicians, unfortunately, can do this very well uh, by um, using fear and external threat and, 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 and dehumanizing the other and can, can, can create that sense of, of collective identity, which is very rewarding in a quite negative way. And the challenge in liberal democracies is how to is how to, to to get to get a more positive you know collective mobilization of a million brains or ten million brains together, and um, uh, cr critical critical to that absolutely critical is values and trust. Um, so, uh, human humans are essentially wired to be quite moral, and you can see this in babies. Um, uh, that that there's a, a very very early wired preference for fairness mm. in the human brain, um, a preference for acts that are positive rather than acts that are negative. But the enemies of that, the enemies of that are uh, tribalism uh, and greed and addiction. The reason we have evolved this tendency to prefer good acts to bad acts is because values are the essential way of binding people together in common action. And the, in order to trust someone, we have to feel that they share our values, okay? Hmm. So if, you, if we're a tribe in early Neanderthal or pre-Neanderthal times, and, you know, we're going to go out hunting. We have to feel that we trust our leader, that we trust the person we're going out hunting with or fighting with. Um, if we don't trust them, then we're not going to get the coordinated, cohesive action of the tribe and we're more likely to be killed off. And and therefore, so so values, values have evolved, are an evolved state. If you like, morals are an evolved state to bind people together. And so you know, an aspiring leader uh, has to really, uh, if they don't want to be a populist rabble rouser like Orban or someone like that, they have to, they have to really bind to their values, know what their values are, communicate their values, and become trusted for walking the walk of their values and not just talking the talk. Because nothing we know as we see now the collapse in confidence in politics is happening in many countries, um, you know, because you know politicians or, or business leaders, for that matter, have have been seen to to be, behave hypocritically or, or 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 defy the values that they ostensibly held. So, uh, and the other thing about values are um, there's a there's a a method called self affirmation. At least very good. American psychologist Desi and Ryan developed, which is that uh, if you if you're feeling threatened psychologically by criticism or negative opinions of other people, which is the greatest source of stress for humans, if you if you just take a few minutes to 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 write down what your values are, why you hold them, and what they mean to you, that's called a self affirmation exercise. The evidence is your brain will respond much more dif much differently to 
criticism and threat mm. because you have you have you have reminded your ego of its place within values and the thing about most most responses to criticism and to humili potential humiliation are essentially a fear of extinction it's, it's a death fear it's terror management theory it's called um and the reason we have our egos is to give this illusion of continuity but when we're under threat our egos try and protect in all sorts of ways but one of the great things to do is to affirm your values embed your ego in your values and the great thing is their values are eternal and so there's a certain immortality in embedding your ego in your values and so i would recommend that any political aspiring political leader just realize that that's your bedrock that's your psychological defense but that's also your binding your binding inspiring the, the chemistry if you like to, to 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 join people together who share your values Yeah. And the self, just a follow-up question on the self-affirmation exercise. This is something you do beforehand. You have a clear grasp of your personal values. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then in the moment where you feel that threat, you can bring that to, to yeah. mind and, and, and yeah. reaffirm that. Preferably you do it. You actually, yes, you can do this mentally as well, but it's quite good to do it, write, write it down, down. you know, yeah. just write it down. So that, it, because at the time of threat, if you haven't, actually done it i mean your mind your mind yeah. will be so full of full of noradrenaline and other chemical messengers that you won't remember to do it so these things are it's a bit like breathing it's a bit like breathing and that's another thing about confidence is if you if, if when you're feeling under pressure or, or, or criticized or you know stressed you tend to breathe faster and, and more shallowly and that increases um mm. carbon dioxide levels in your brain and 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 changes the chemistry of your brain. If you can just remember to breathe slowly in for four and out for six, slow your breathing. But you have to do that beforehand yeah. because you won't remember to do it unless you yeah. practice it 70 or 80 times beforehand to make it a habit. And at the time of stress, you won't remember to do it. And of course, that will help you be more confident and more likely to deliver the behavior, the goal you've set for yourself. Yeah. Professor Robertson, I think there are so many takeaways here um, for the listener, so many very concrete things and exercises as well. Um, perhaps to end on this note, imagine this is a question I like to ask at the end of a, of a, an, a, a conversation. Um, imagine this, uh, you have this billboard and you can write anything on this billboard as a message. And this billboard is located outside of government buildings and parliament buildings uh, around the world. And people walk past it uh, to work uh, in government. What is it that you would like to write on this billboard as a statement or a question? You are going to die. So don't get hooked up into believing that you can fend off death by success or developing your ego or, or narcissism. Uh, affirm your values and you will be immortal. Professor Robertson, uh, this has been a really insightful conversation. Um, it will be difficult for me to tease out all the golden nuggets. I think it's going to be a go uh, long list. Um, but I thank you very much for taking this time to share the research uh, on this on this really important topic, I think, for people who are just joining joining politics. Um, thank you very much.
Thank you very much, Daniel. It's a real pleasure talking to you. Hey, this is Daniel. Thanks for listening. I hope you liked the episode. Please share it with someone who might find it valuable as well. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover or a guest I should talk to, let me know. You can find out more on my website. Head over to politicwise.org. Until the next time. <laughs>